Dr. Mark Shanahan is an Associate Professor in Politics at the University of Reading. He joins me, Robert Hogg, to discuss local politics starting from Reading, then working our way out to the devolved nations. Thank you for being on the podcast today. For those who are not aware, can you outline to us what the difference is between unitary authorities, wards and constituencies, in addition to mayors, councillors and MPs? Crikey, so we've got about five hours, have we then? That is fine. Um, So our local politics are not homogenous across the country. Uh, At the most local level, you have a ward, the area you live in, the houses and roads around you, and you'll be represented by a councillor for that. So if you're sitting around Reading at the moment, you could be in... Battle Ward or Redlands Ward or any of those. And uh, when the the recent local elections happened, you were voting for your ward councillors. Now, those councillors will be representatives of different parties. Sometimes they're independent. Sometimes they're just local people who want to have a voice in how local government happens, how the decisions of how bins get emptied or whatever it may be happen. They band together to form councils. The councils are uh, political animals, political entities. If you look at Reading, for instance, uh, you have one council that covers the whole of Reading. It's quite different and entirely separate from West Berkshire around here. Again, it's different again from Slough. Other counties will have a county council. They'll then have district councils within those. Buckinghamshire just got together to become a unitary council. They put the different councils who they thought maybe were replicating different functions together to be more efficient. But all of these will be made up of local representatives who are local to you from your area. We're recording this shortly after the 2022 local elections where there was some debate as to the extent to which the results were based on national issues compared to local issues. Do you think that there is a growing trend in local elections for national issues to be pivotal at the expense of local issues? I think we're very much at that stage in the political cycle at the moment where the national issues are dominating. Often in times when things are going well, uh, people will become much more exercised and much more interested in the local issues. But at the moment, things aren't going so well nationally. So whether it's party gates or whether it's uh, the cost of living crisis, the war in Ukraine or the many travails that seem to be affecting us in the world, people were much more conscious of that. And when things aren't going so well, they tend to protest about whoever is in government at a national level at the moment. And I think in the recent local elections, the Conservatives saw that with a loss of nearly 500 seats nationally. It won't necessarily translate into uh, a same kind of loss at a general election. That is fought quite differently. But some of the local issues that we face around here in Berkshire really did get quite overlooked in uh, the local campaigns. And I know talking to some of our own students and some of my other friends who were out campaigning, on the doorstep, people did want to talk about what Boris Johnson was up to or what Keir Starmer was up to, whether it was Partygate, whether it was Currygate, whatever that may be. And what's actually going on in Reading or in Wokingham Borough tended to come well down the conversation and often only when prompted by the people who are out doing the door knocking. Have any of those people told you what the sort of local issues that matter to them are at the moment? Yeah, um, big local issue and I was talking to some friends in Wokingham was about housing. So there are large tracts 
of land uh, around Woking and Borough that are up for development. And people really were worried that under the national government policy, which was very much being endorsed by the council at the time, uh, local people weren't getting uh, sufficient or significant voice in uh, local planning applications. So there are some big estates that are due to be built. There was a bit of a sense, certainly when I was talking to people, there was a sense that they're building lots of houses, but not necessarily putting in the infrastructure around it. Uh, there was a change in that council with the Conservatives losing some seats and the Lib Dems gaining some, which means there's now no overall majority. And uh, certainly, again, for the group of people that I was talking to, they felt that this was a step forward. And now maybe, in terms of housing, their voice will be heard. And it seems to, be, to have been heard nationally because some of the policy nationally is changing. One of the themes that I'm following on this podcast is why local politics should matter to young people. Do you think that young people should vote in local politics? Why should potholes and how often their bins get emptied matter to them? Young people are citizens of this country. They absolutely should have a local voice. You're talking uh, about a voting age of 18 here. If they were in Wales, they'd be able to vote from 16. Uh, perhaps it draws people in more. We have a real issue in this country in that we have very poor political education in schools. One of the ways that we can gain knowledge of what matters politically is by being involved. And the first step in being involved is exercising your democratic right to vote. Potholes may not be of interest to you at age 18, but maybe at age 19 or age 20 when you've got a car and your wheel goes down in one and suddenly it's £200 to replace a tyre. Actually, you'd have to have a pretty good car to have a £200 tyre. It's £100 to replace your tyre. Suddenly that matters, particularly if you haven't got a huge income. If the shops in the high street are closing because they're not getting uh, support on business rates from local councils, that might affect you if you work in one of those shops. If you've got a part-time job while you're at school or while you're studying, it does matter. You may not be active yourself politically, but you want to live in a nice environment. You want that environment to actually work for you as an 18 to 24-year-old, for instance. And... If you don't vote, if you don't play your part in it, what right do you actually have to complain when things go wrong? Are there anything, is there anything that local politicians can do themselves to engage young people more? Yeah, listen, because um, th they don't. Uh, most councillors are age 60 plus, uh, still significantly favours white men. Um, because they're the people who have the time to put into this. Uh, it can be quite an onerous job to be a local councillor and uh, they're, they're, it's not paid particularly well. If you be, get a cabinet position on a council, it maybe can be the equivalent of a halfway decent job salary. But for the normal councillor representing a ward, it's expenses plus, which is not very much at all. Um, some will... Uh, really focus on their own group of people around them who will be the older people who they meet with, who they play golf with, who they go down the pub with, who they do whatever they do with. Councillors have got to think beyond that. 
um, from my age and above, we're going to die off in the next 20, 30 years. Uh, it's going to be your generation who are going to be taking over and running this country. They, You have got to have a decent inheritance and better than just having an inheritance to take on in 20 or 30 years' time, be listened to now. Let's have young people's ideas brought into council planning. Let's have young people's views heard far more vociferously. You look at issues like housing, it would be fantastic to get more people on the housing ladder, but housing in Berkshire is pretty much unaffordable. I think the average age of people getting on the housing ladder around here now is 37, which is a shocking indictment. So maybe getting some policies changed starts locally with local grassroots politics. It starts with council-level politics. And for any change to happen, that just means an awful lot more listening and then acting on what young people have to say, what they bring to the table, rather than just saying, yes, that was lovely to hear. Now I'm going back to my friends at the golf club. Tom Tugendhat recently spoke to the Reading University Politics and International Relations Society and his piece of advice to um, young people was not to have a job outside of politics if you want to become a local politician. Is there any advantage to being a local politician or is this advice essential? What did he mean by don't have a job outside politics? As in his argument, I think, was that Parliament should be a chamber of experts and it should be people with experience in other careers outside of politics. Okay, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I, I would interpret that as saying get experience of the real world before you go into any kind of national politics. An awful lot of people go straight from a politics degree at university to working for an MP to becoming a special advisor to being parachuted into a constituency and suddenly at the age of 33 you're an MP without actually having done uh, a day's honest graft in the kind of industries that your constituents are going to be working in. Um, build up your local experience while having a job alongside that, a real job, um, not just talking in an echo chamber of other politically interested people, because 90% of people in this country are not interested in politics at all. Um, understand what matters to them. And the best way to do that is by working in another field entirely. Talk to and listen to your workmates. Uh, what are the issues that really affect them? Bring that into your political discussion, into your efforts in policy making. There are six unitary authorities in Berkshire, Reading and Slough, which are controlled by Labour, Windsor and Maidenhead, Bracknell Forest, West Berkshire, which are all controlled by the Conservatives, Wokingham, which has switched from the Conservatives to no overall control in the recent local elections. Why is there such political disparity in this sort of area? It's quite fascinating because if you map that on to the MPs, you've got a Labour MP in Slough, uh, close to Heathrow Airport, um, always been a different demographic there. You've got one Labour MP in Reading East, which is around the university area, unsurprisingly. Other than that, and I do remember saying on the BBC in 2015, there are parts of Berkshire where if you put a mop with a blue rosette up for election, it would be elected. 
Our councils are always slightly different. So this is true blue Tory land, the royal county. Um, but Reading and Slough are both highly urbanised. You've got a much wider demographic. You've got a much more diverse population in terms of race and ethnicity. Um, it's very different from West Berkshire, which is largely rural, which is older, more affluent communities. If you look at where the younger people are, it tends to be Reading, it tends to be Slough. Perhaps there will be changes in places like Bracknell Forest in the, in the future if we get a, a younger population in there. Um, what we're guessing, what we're seeing very interestingly with Wokingham is local issues mattered. As I said, housing was a massive issue in the election and perhaps there was a little bit of conservative complacency. They've been uh, in charge of the council for a long time and that feeling that perhaps local people weren't being listened to to quite the extent that they wanted to gave an opportunity for a very well organised Lib Dem campaign this time round. Um, but this is still the affluent southeast. It is the blue wall Tory heartland. It is difficult um, for other parts of the county, of these six unity, unitary areas that you've said, for places like Windsor, I, I wouldn't expect to see change anytime soon there. We're also talking in a week that Reading has been unsuccessful in its latest application to become a city. Does this matter? Who wants to be like Doncaster and Wrexham anyway? Uh, Reading is a fantastic town. Uh, unlike being one of eight new cities, it retains a unique status as the biggest town in the United Kingdom not to be a city. I think Reading should be very proud of what it is um, and shouldn't feel in any way inferior to the South Ends or Doncasters or, dare I say, Milton Keynes. Uh, who have acceded to city status. I and mean, what's it actually mean? I always think of cities uh, in a very traditional way of being centres that maybe had a cathedral. Um, we seem to have widened what a city is hugely now. Um, if it means Reading would have got some additional money from central government, yeah, I'm sure that would have been welcomed hugely. But I don't think it makes a great deal of difference anyway. I spend quite a lot of time in America where I am always driving through the city of Campbell, Alabama, population 673. Anywhere can call itself a city. Reading's a pretty special place. Moving further afield away from Reading... Can you tell us about how devolution worked in general and how uh, devolution to the UK nations came about? Okay, so devolution is the decentralisation of some powers. Now, we have uh, a government based on Westminster, or based on Whitehall, really, which still keeps a strong centralisation of powers. Um, most things that really matter in the United Kingdom, be they around finance, around foreign affairs, around defence will and always will, as far as I can tell, sit under the bailiwick of the Prime Minister. But there are a lot of local affairs that are best dealt with locally. So from the time of New Labour in the 1990s, there was a move 
to devolve some of these powers first to the nations. So you've had Scotland Act, Wales Act, you've had Northern Ireland Acts that created the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly, latterly the Welsh Parliament, the Senate, and also the Legislative Assembly based on Stormont in Northern Ireland. And these have devolved powers around local tax raising, around the environment, around education, around health, out to these nations. So decisions are made locally, so some taxes are raised locally, so that the slice of money that comes from central government to these nations, the way that it's spent is decided locally. And uh, people in each of the nations have the opportunity to elect representation purely to act on these issues within those parliaments and legislative assemblies. We've seen more of a move recently to elect regional mayors, in some cases city mayors, very notable uh, in this last round of elections that Bristol decided that the city mayor wasn't working, so they're getting rid of theirs in two years' time. To give a bit more voice and a bit more power locally on local issues. Even this government feels that this is the way to go. They look at areas like the West Midlands under Andy Short and Ben Houchin up in the northeast on Teesside, I think it is, uh, as very successful areas because they see one of the roles of the mayor, a very strong role, is growing enterprise in those areas. So if you look at Michael Gove's levelling up agenda, actually the power of the mayoralities is key to that. Uh, not that I'm party political in any way, shape or form whatsoever, but he does seem to be favouring the likes of uh, the West Midlands and Teesside, who both have Conservative mayors. Funny that. Um, are we going to see further devolution? I think there is a sense that there should be further devolution in England, but it has always been quite a contentious piece. The, the, the strength of the Westminster model and sending MPs to Westminster has always greatly favoured England over the other nations anyway. So people are really quite confused about what benefit, if any, having further devolution and electing more mayors and having stronger councils uh, within the English regions would bring, whether there would be English regional assemblies. Now, my former colleague here, Alan Rennick, is a very strong proponent for this. He He's looked at how uh, we can improve accountability for governments in the country and sees uh, regional devolution as a way forward in that. But at the moment, the country is not really biting. Moving even further out, the Scottish Nationalist Party campaigned for Scotland to exit the United Kingdom and they came first place in the last set of local elections. Why do you think there is this level of support for this party? Partly it's a massive dissatisfaction with what they see as the overly controlling central role that Westminster plays and uh, the Conservative government in London. Partly there is a, a stronger sense of nationalism now than there was back in the 20th century. The fact that the SNP have won just about every election since the Scotland Act of 1998. They've grown stronger and stronger. But there still is not actually a majority for independence. 
if you look at the most recent figures, I was uh, having a look online today, I think it comes out as four independents is about 36%. The figure against is a little bit higher than that. The most interesting bit, of course, is the don't knows in the middle. If there actually was a referendum, which way would they jump? Uh, we've had a union uh, between England and Scotland for 400 years now. It's not going to end like that. Uh, it might take a little while for it. Northern Ireland might actually be a more interesting one, which is a huge political mess at the moment. And I think we are inching closer to an island of Ireland referendum. You bring me quite nicely onto my next question. We don't have time, unfortunately, for a 10-episode series talking about Northern Ireland, but could you briefly outline for us who Sinn Féin are, who the DEP are, and how power sharing works? Okay, so the, the system of government in Northern Ireland is based on the two largest parties that are there. So the Democratic Unionist Party emerged over the last 20 years as the strongest voice for unionist politics. So th this is sectarian politics. They are the Protestant-based unionist party who want to retain links with the United Kingdom. Sinn Féin is the largest nationalist party um, spun out of the provisional IRA and when the IRA put the guns and the bombs away and equally it was the, the unionist paramilitaries on their side which spurred on the DUP. But when the IRA put away their guns and bombs and decided that the ballot box was the best way forward. Sinn Féin really emerged as a strong political force. It's been around for a long time. It actually is, is pretty strong both north and south of the Irish border at the moment. And when the next Southern Irish elections come around, you could have Sinn Féin emerging as the largest party there as well. The way it operates in government at the moment is that you have a first minister and a deputy first minister. The first minister comes from the largest party. Uh, as of the most recent legislative assembly elections, that is Sinn Féin. So Michelle O'Neill stands to be the first minister and it would be the first time that there has been a Catholic nationalist first minister since Northern Ireland was founded 100 years ago. Um, on the DUP side, they will—they are still the biggest unionist party. They will put forward the deputy first minister. First minister and deputy first minister are something of an anomaly. They have equal powers, pretty much. They have to work together. And at the moment, because the DUP uh, is not liking the direction of politics in Northern Ireland, they are refusing to pay ball, play ball. They are refusing to put forward a deputy first minister. Therefore, the assembly is not operational at the moment. What's the historic precedence of Sinn Féin becoming the largest party? It's massive because when the Northern Irish state was founded, there was basically a sectarian divide that two thirds of the population was Protestant and one third of the population of the six counties that make up Northern Ireland was Catholic. And so it looked as though the Unionists would be in power in perpetuity. What's happened, certainly with this last election, is... The Unionists backed Brexit. 55% of Northern Ireland voters voted for Remain. 
the Democratic Unionist Party have uh, really gone hard line in attacking the Northern Ireland Protocol. That's out of kilter with the majority in the country. So while Sinn Féin have emerged as the largest party, a very, very significant part of the growing population that is Northern Ireland's now 2 million population have voted for other parties non-sectarian parties, particularly the Alliance, but also the SDLP, which was always the smaller nationalist party, but is now seen as a lot less sectarian, or for independent candidates or for other small parties. So this strong divide politically is fracturing a little bit, um, but also we have a changing demographic that nationalists within probably 20 years are likely to outnumber unionists in Northern Ireland. So change is always going to happen. We probably have seen it politically slightly sooner than some would have predicted. We recently, as part of a module, went on a trip to the devolved parliament in Wales. Um, something that they were very proud of is the diversity amongst elected representatives. I think they mentioned that they had 50-50 gender representation as an example. Um, why do you think this is not re reflected in the UK parliament? Uh, I think when you look at the way our parliament operates in Westminster, it is very traditional. It is adversarial politics. If you looked at, say, for instance, the most recent prime minister's questions, the prime minister didn't answer questions, but stood there and answered accusations that came from the leader of the opposition by punching down that who stood there and answered questions that came in from the Scottish Nationalist Party in Westminster by punching down, by sneering. If you're a woman, do you want to go into that public school class-ridden, um, pretty dysfunctional environment. If you're a woman, do you want to go into that environment where over 50 MPs are being investigated for some form of sex offence at the moment? If you're not a white, middle-class male, does that working environment appeal to you? If you're not on some kind of a power trip? Is it the right environment? Is it the environment you would choose to go into? Uh, I think we have a fairly dysfunctional institution at the heart of our government. And until that reboots what its functionality should be, we're unlikely to get that kind of 50-50 representation. And lastly, if Scotland, Northern Ireland and Wales each held referendums on whether to stay as part of the United Kingdom within the next few years, what would be your prediction for each of them? My prediction would be that the current Prime Minister might have taken the U out of the UK. Uh, Scotland is on a knife edge. It, it's, you could make a very strong case for it remaining or for it leaving the Union. I think the days of Northern Ireland being part of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland are probably numbered. I suspect in my lifetime that we will see a united Ireland in some form. I don't think it will be purely a united Ireland just governed from Dublin. 
uh, Belfast will still have a very strong role to play in that. There, there, there will be uh, some compromise, but I think there will be a united Ireland. Wales has always been a principality. It's never had the case for independence that Scotland has had. It's never had the natural resources unless you want to count for coal, but I don't think we particularly want to open the coal mines again. Um, it's a different case. I think there will be greater autonomy for Wales, but not independence. Dr Mark Shanahan, thank you so much. Thank you.